In the Old Testament, there is a mysterious figure named the Angel of the Lord. This figure identifies as Yahweh, the only God, but also speaks of Yahweh in the third person. Today we're going to see how this figure is an early picture of the triune Godhead that would soon be revealed in Christ. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and my name is Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being with me, as always. Today, we are continuing our series on the Trinity, and we are moving into the Old Testament. We're really looking at a lot of Old Testament pictures and ideas that have to relate to Christ's divinity, to the triune Godhead, and all the things we've been talking about. So if you are new to this series, if you're new to this topic, then I highly recommend that you go back and watch the previous episodes, as really everything is designed to be in a cumulative understanding. Of course, I'm trying to do my best to make these episodes stand alone, but nonetheless, it's very important to have context. Now, we have recently shifted in a different direction. As of the last episode, we're talking about the Old Testament and Jesus in the Old Testament. So make sure you check that out, because it was really quite an interesting episode. We talked about typology. That's one of my favorite topics to study. I think it's just a fascinating testament to the sovereignty of God to see the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. It's a really, just a fascinating topic to study. If you've never studied typology, then that last episode will be a great primer for you, a great way to kind of introduce you to the study. It's certainly not exhaustive, but it, it will be interesting and edifying. But nonetheless, we are continuing today. Now, before I get started with, with everything, I do want to encourage you to subscribe on my Substack or through my website, danceoflife.com. Either way, it'll take you to my Substack. And the reason I say that is several reasons, actually. The first is that everything that I create and publish is a, you know um, focused there. I'm looking for the word aggregated. That's the word I was looking for. It's all aggregated there. It's all a conglomerate there. So you can access everything that I create, articles, videos, posts, well, all kinds of things right there. But even more importantly, especially if you're on YouTube, everything that I publish that's a video, you can watch it ad-free. Now, whether somebody monetizes their channel or not, YouTube is always putting ads on everything. And so I know that that's really frustrating for me when I'm watching YouTube videos. So I encourage you to go and subscribe there. A third reason is that you just never know with these platforms with how they're censoring people and you know, even just shadow banning them or preventing their content from going out to their listeners. It's just really, I don't trust YouTube whatsoever. So go and subscribe on my Substack. That's tutoralexander.substack.com or just simply danceoflife.com and we can stay in touch. But today we are continuing this series on the Trinity. Of course, the Old Testament has a lot to say about it, despite what most people are arguing against. Most people who argue against the Trinity say that there's nothing in the Old Testament that you know, would support the Trinity, but actually, they're wrong. And I intend to prove that to you over and over again through all of these Old Testament episodes. Last time we looked at typology and the typology of Christ. Now, typology are basically pictures, nonverbal prophecy is the definition we looked at. They're pictures that are foreshadowing and painting the future, and specifically of Christ. Now, it's very important to understand that the Jews of Jesus' time and, and the Hebrews believed in a divine Messiah. 
people like Melchizedek, the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. All of these things were painting the picture that the, the, the Messiah that was coming to save Israel had a divine component. Now, the part that the Jews stumbled over is that the Messiah also had pictures of being a humble servant and being a propitiation for sins and being sacrificed, which the Jews could just not understand. Now, today's Jews, in great contrast to these Hebrew traditions, don't even believe in a divine Messiah anymore. They believe in two Messiahs, and these Messiahs are political in nature. So we have seen a very drastic shift between, you know, the, the Jews of today, we'll call them that, and the Hebrew traditions and the scriptures and the Israelite beliefs of the Messiah. Because the Bible, the Torah, testifies to a divine God King, but also that same person is a propitiation for sin, which is really fascinating to think about that, that those drastically opposite qualities are integrated into one person. But nonetheless, these pictures testify to the divinity of the Messiah. So Jesus, according to these typological prophecies, had to be divine. Also, of course, he's a suffering servant and the propitiation for sins. He's humble, but he was also going to be divine. Very, very important. So we're looking at these pictures from the Old Testament. We looked at even prophecies like Micah. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, where he says that the coming of the Messiah is from of old, meaning he existed before, there was pre-existence. So all these things in the Old Testament are testifying to a pre-existent divine God-King that will be incarnate in human form and take the sins of the world upon himself. Fascinating. Really just fascinating. We also saw a shadow of the Trinity in Genesis last episode where God in the very beginning says, let us make man in our image. Now, he's not talking to the angels there because the angels aren't made in God's image. Only mankind is made in God's image. He's talking to himself, but he, in this case, God, is plural. Elohim is plural. And when it, when it says, let us make, make is a plural word. Let us make man in our image. I'm sorry, make is a singular word, but us and our are plurals. They're referring to plurality. So that's where the interesting thing is, that if you look at the original language, the verbs are attributed to a singular being. It's singular. They're in singular form. But this person that's speaking, the being that's speaking, let's put it that way, it's Yahweh, it's God, he is speaking and referring to himself in plurality throughout Genesis, those first early accounts of, of the book of Genesis. But then you also see things like Adam hearing the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden, where we all know that God is transcendent and incorporeal, and yet you have a, a body that's obviously walking through the garden that Adam and Eve are interacting with. It's not, you know, some glowing presence that's floating around. It's an actual body. So God has a body, and yet he's also transcendent. God is speaking in the plural, and yet he's, he's attributed those verbs as singular. 
Very, very interesting. These are shadows that really lead you to a confusing situation. If you don't have the revelation of the Trinity, if you don't have revelation of the New Testament, and certainly we see this throughout history because the Jews had a understanding called two powers in heaven. We're going to look at that today in greater detail. I've mentioned it before, but we're going to look at that today in greater detail because the two powers in heaven is very, very interesting. You see also at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 6, when, when judgment is happening and the Lamb is coming back, Jesus, to basically disperse judgment. This is Revelation 6, verse 16. Then the king, actually 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Their wrath is plural because there's him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So there are two persons being distinguished here, which is very interesting. Two persons being distinguished. And yet if you read in other parts of Revelation, you will see that it is Jesus who's on the throne. In Revelation, right in the beginning of Revelation, verse um, chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is what Yahweh says in the Old Testament. So you're dealing with constant pictures where, you know, you have distinction between God and also complete unity. I and the Father are one. But then you have distinction where, for example, the transfiguration or the baptism, where there's obvious distinction between Jesus and the Father, and of course, the Holy Spirit as well, which we talked about. So there are all of these things to reconcile, and unless you have a model for understanding that, especially in the Old Testament, which we're going to look at with the angel of the Lord, it really leads to a little confusion. And that's by design. It's by design because the Old Testament was a shadow of the things to come. Now, in the Old Testament, you see these, these two powers, which, again, we'll talk about with the Jewish tradition. They believe in two powers in heaven. But we see this through the angel of the Lord, who is this figure that is supernatural. He's incredibly powerful. He's God, basically identifies as God, as Yahweh. He does only what God does. He takes credit for God's action. He receives worship. And yet he also speaks of Yahweh in the third person. And you have these constant interchange where one minute he's speaking in terms of himself, and then he's speaking in terms of God as in third person. It's very, very interesting. Today we're going to look at more of these examples, a lot of examples. So we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. We're going to be looking at the angel of the Lord's interaction with people like Abraham, with the judges, with the various prophets, a lot of different places where the angel of the Lord shows up. And of course, it's not exhaustive because the angel of the Lord is really everywhere in the Old Testament practically, but we're going to look at a lot of a lot of the main ones. Now, our, our goal today is we want to answer this simple question. Is the angel of the Lord God? Is he God? And this is, this is the question to answer because the angel of the Lord, when you really 
do all the research and we're going to look at it, so this is a bit of a spoiler, the angel of the Lord was most likely a pre-incarnate manifestation or appearance of Christ in his glorious form. Very, very interesting. So, let's look at the idea of an angel as a messenger, because today we look at angels, you know, we, we have a lot of drawings and ideas about angels with wings and halos and all these things, but really angel, the word for angel comes from, it's translated from Hebrew malach, which is messenger. It's just somebody who's a messenger, who's basically a representative of some kind, or, you know, a physical corporeal messenger. It's used for identifying the role of somebody. Very important to understand this, not their identity. Meaning, messenger is not an ontological label. It is a an economical label. Now, again, if you are just new to this series, then go check out that first episode because we talk about the very important distinction between ontology and economy. Angel is not an ontological identity. It is merely saying this person is performing a function. This person could be God. It doesn't say. I mean, it does say in the Bible that the angel of the Lord is, is God, but angel doesn't mean rank or ontology or anything like that. It doesn't mean quality. It just means what are they doing? They're giving a message. Very, very important. It doesn't change their identity. Today, there's no way to say an angel of the Lord in Hebrew. I mean, when we look back at the Old Testament, there's no way to say that there's an angel. It's always the angel of the Lord. This is another important, another important topic where if you look at every instance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it always has the definite article, meaning it's, it's, it's a definite noun. It is a the, like it's, it's hard to understand in English, but it, you know, it's like the angel of the Lord. Everybody knew who the angel of the Lord was. So this is another important aspect to this figure's identity is that everybody knew that it wasn't just an angel of the Lord that would show up in these various situations. It was always the same one. It was always the angel of the Lord, which is very, very important because it's a it's denoting a unique type of person. Again, angel doesn't mean you know I, ontology or rank in in some any some understanding. It means function. And in this case, because it's always the same person, it would attribute something very special to that person. Very interesting. Now in the New Testament, there is an occurrence of the word an where it says in Matthew 28, verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This is the only occurrence, and it's in the New Testament. And this is possible because in Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek, but the point is that it's what this is making. It's not a parallel to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And you'll understand why this is the case, because the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a very specific person. The reason this is written the way it is, is because first off, it's possible in Greek to just say, oh yeah, somebody from God came and rolled back the stone. It was a messenger. But it wasn't the messenger, if you understand what I'm saying. 
In Greek, this is possible, and it's used for clarity. It's not saying this is the angel of the Lord, as in equating it to the person of the Old Testament. It's saying that somebody, obviously a supernatural messenger of some kind, a being, an angel, came and rolled back the stone. But that angel wasn't the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Very, very important. You understand these distinctions as we look at how the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament behaves and performs and does things than what he says, because he's very, very different. In the, in the Old Testament, it's just angel of Yahweh also. That's another important thing. This is, in, in the New Testament, this says an angel of the Lord, meaning an angel from God. But in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the angel of Yahweh. So he's specifically identified with God, with Yahweh. Very, very interesting. Of course, we know in Exodus that God says, I've put my name in him, so obey him. We'll look at that, which is a very interesting parallel idea. Now, the word an angel, like the phrase an angel, appears 11 times in the New Testament. And only once does it appear in the New Testament with the word the before it, as in the angel. And this is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 24. So let's look at it really quick. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So you can see that the, the instance of the angel of the Lord in this passage was in Matthew 1 verse 24. The reason I read you these previous verses is so you understand the context. The context is an angel appeared to him, a messenger from God, not the angel of the Lord, but just a messenger, and was delivering a message. And so then on the commentary of that, this is why the, the definite article was used. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. It's used in a very matter-of-fact literal way. It's not refer the word the is not referring to this particular person who is the angel of the Lord, in this case, as the angel of the Lord. Does that make sense? I really hope it does, because as you'll see in the Old Testament, the understanding of the angel of the Lord is very, very different than what we see in the New Testament with these brief instances of messengers coming to speak to humanity or to deal with people in various ways. So there's there's some very important distinctions, and the conclusion is that the Old Testament instances of the angel of the Lord describe a very specific and different type of person. It's not just a regular angel or a messenger, but somebody that's very different. So this is the thing to take. Now, I want to read you this two powers in heaven thing. And it's from Michael Heiser, who he's passed away now, and he's done some good work. Now, look, I don't agree with everything that Michael Heiser has put forward. There are many things I don't agree with him on. But again, learn to take 
the good things from people and to spit out the bones, right? Taking the meat, spit out the bones. And Michael Heiser has done some decent work on certain things like the two powers in heaven. I want to read you that so you have a better clue of the context of why the Jews of Jesus's time, and even before that, believed in this two powers in heaven deal because they were they were rightly confused by the shadows that were in the Old Testament of God's multiple multiple personhood, plurality, let's put it that way. So it's very, very interesting. All right, this is from his own website, and it's titled Two Powers in Heaven. 25 years ago, rabbinical scholar Alan Siegel produced what is still a major work on the idea of two powers in heaven in Jewish thought. So this was originally published by a rabbinical scholar. Segal argued that the two powers idea was not deemed heretical in Jewish theology until the second century CE. Very important. He carefully traced the roots of the teaching back into the Second Temple era, around 200 BC. Segal was able to establish that the idea's antecedents were in the Hebrew Bible, specifically passages like Daniel 7, verse 9, Exodus 23, uh, verses 20 to 23, Exodus 15, 3. However, he was unable to discern any coherent religious framework from which these passages and others were conceptually derived. Persian dualism was unacceptable as an explanation since neither of the two powers in heaven were evil. So they were they were trying to figure out where did this come from because it's not a duality type of thing. They're, they're both good powers. Segal speculated that the divine warrior imagery of the broader ancient Near East likely had some relationship. In my dissertation, I argue that Segal's instincts were correct. My own work bridges the gap between this book between his book and the Hebrew Bible understood in its Canaanite religious context. I suggest that the original model for the two powers idea was the role of the vice regent of the divine council. Now, whether you agree with this or not, I, I'm not super a fan of the divine council idea, so I'm just putting that asterisk there. The paradigm of a high sovereign God who rules heaven and earth through the agency of a second appointed God, Baal, became part of the Israelite religion, albeit with some modifications. So remember, the, the Israelites borrowed El from the Canaanites. They didn't have the word El. They, they borrowed it. Elohim, El, th these things were borrowed from the Canaanites. Doesn't mean they, they're pagan. They were just appropriated because they didn't have words for these things. For the Orthodox Israelite, Yahweh was both sovereign and also vice-regent, occupying both slots, as it were, at the head of the divine council. The Binatarian portrayal of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible was motivated by this belief. The ancient Israelites knew two Yahwehs, one invisible, a spirit, and the other visible, often in human form. The two Yahwehs at time appear together in the text. This is very interesting. At times being distinguished, at other times not. Early Judaism understood this portrayal and its rationale. There was no sense of a violation of monotheism since either figure was indeed Yahweh. There was no second distinct God running the affairs of the cosmos. During the Second Temple period, Jewish, Jewish theologians and writers speculated on an identity for the second Yahweh. Guesses ranged from div divinized humans from the stories of the Hebrew Bible to exalted angels. These speculations were not considered unorthodox, which is very important, and that ex the acceptance that acceptance changed when certain Jews, the early Christians, connected Jesus with this orthodox Jewish idea. There you go.
This is why it was deemed a heresy. This explains why these Jews, the first converts to following Jesus the Christ, could simultaneously worship the God of Israel and Jesus, and yet refuse to acknowledge any other God. Jesus was the incarnate second Yahweh. In response, as Sigal's work demonstrated, Judaism pronounced the two powers teaching a heresy sometime in the second century AD. Very, very interesting to know your history because the Jews, for a couple centuries before Jesus, rightly understood the scriptures as revealing distinction within God to Yahweh's. Because again, as you'll soon see from countless examples we're going to go into, that there is dis distinction and also unity, which again, it's, it testifies to a plurality, that God is one being, you have one God, but he exists in a plurality. Now, of course, with the advent of Christianity and with Jesus claiming to be God, to be that incarnate God, and Christianity, you know, basically starting to spread in the Middle East, the Jews declared it a heresy to believe that there are two Yahwehs. And so the Jews who did that were the ones who rejected Jesus, obviously, because the ones who realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of this shadow that was going on for hundreds of years, they're the ones who converted, like Paul. And this is, again, one of the major breaks where today's Judaism has broken off from the Hebrew scriptures. Christianity is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Judaism has broken off in many ways. It is a different religion. It has nothing to do with the Hebrew scriptures. The first point being that they separated this idea of the two powers in heaven, that, that, that God is plural and they, because they rejected Christ. And so you have these early historical proofs that something should be investigated. Something interesting is going on here. God is one being, but it seems that he has distinction with himself. And so this is something to examine because there are examples in the Old Testament where it seems like there are two powers or two gods, so to speak, that are speaking. And they're speaking, God is speaking in the third person. So for example, you have Psalm 45, verse 6 through 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is about the Messiah. But the Messiah is called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, if you remember in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews applies this to Jesus. We looked at this in some of the way back previous episodes where we looked at what other people said about Jesus. And this is one of the, the Psalms about the Messiah that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, applies to Jesus, meaning of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, meaning the O God here is applied to Jesus. Another proof of divinity. But then you have... Later, the next verse is, therefore, God, your God, which is a distinction between the God that we just saw, the Son, the Messiah, the incarnate God, and then there's another God. Like, how does that work? And again, if you're just in the Old Testament looking forward, this could cause 
some confusion that maybe there's plurality within God. Back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God is speaking to Jacob here, and he's telling them to go to Bethel and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you. Why doesn't he say, make an altar to me, because I appeared to you there? Instead, he says, make an altar to the God who appeared to you there. Very interesting. You have a lot of these types of statements throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. Exodus 19, verse 24 And the Lord Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, meaning to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So you have Yahweh speaking, and the Lord said to him, meaning Yahweh's, the Lord in capital letters means Yahweh, and Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So again, this is kind of confusing if you don't understand the Trinity, that that God is multipersonal. God is speaking, but then he's speaking like in a third person. Don't let the people come up here unless Yahweh is going to break out against them. Well, wait a minute, aren't you Yahweh? So this is the, this is the multipersonal plurality that we see over and over again, where it seems like there's two gods, two powers. Exodus 24, verse 1, Then he said to Moses, this is Yahweh speaking, Come up to the Lord, you Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and worship from afar. Again, it's this referring to himself in the third person. Then he said to Moses, which is Yahweh speaking, Come up to Yahweh. It doesn't say come up to me. It says come up to the Lord, meaning Yahweh. It's a capital letter, Lord. So you have a lot of these examples. These are just a few There's also examples where now the angel of the Lord, if we look a little closer at the actual person of the angel, where he claims God's actions. So if we look at, for example, Genesis 31, verse 11, 13, then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Here it is. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So who's speaking? The angel is speaking. The angel of God is speaking, the angel of the Lord. But the angel says, I am the God of Bethel. You made a vow to me. Now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So the angel is claiming to be God. Very interesting. Now in Judges... Chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, same thing. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. He's the one who's doing these things. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? Again, if you remember like throughout, it's just so many things here, like, even in the very beginning where Adam has sinned and other people have sinned, where Cain murders Abel, God always asks the same question. What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? Very interesting. Again, this is consistent with his pattern. 
you haven't obeyed my voice? Well, wait a minute. You can't obey a created being. You can't obey anybody other than God. So the, the angel who is speaking, the person who is speaking, is not just a messenger. And we'll look at this more and more again because some people say, well, he's on behalf. He's, you know, he's a messenger, so therefore he's speaking like he's speaking, like he, uh, like God would speak. But that's not true. There is no instance of a messenger in the Bible where, for example, when John was visited by the angel and John bowed down to the angel, what did the angel do? Even though he was on behalf of God, what did the angel do to John? He said, don't do that. Get up. Don't bow down to me. I'm a fellow worker like you. I don't remember the exact verse right now, but you can look it up in Revelation. So ultimately, what does this tell you? It tells you that the actions of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament are unique. And the actions show that he claims to be God. He basically is worshipped and obeyed. And he takes credit for God's actions, which is very, very important. Now compare this to Joshua in Joshua 24, verse 6 through 7, where there, there's interchanging of, of these persons. Verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, again, Yahweh speaking, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord... He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come up upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Now, this, again, it's just if you don't have an understanding that God is multipersonal, and when he speaks, it's, it's like he's speaking. It's just so fascinating. It really, really, it's just mind-blowing. But he's speaking multipersonally. Because one minute you have, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. Okay, makes sense. God did that. God is speaking to Joshua. Makes sense. We can understand that from our limited, you know, physical minds, that everything is one-to-one. -one. But then the, the person speaking, who is God, obviously, says, and when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. So when they cried to Yahweh, presumably the Yahweh that's not corporeal, he made darkness between you and the Egyptians. And the sea came upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Now we're back to the, to the first person speaking. Do you see how there's this interchanging constantly? And again, I mean, the Jews saw this, the Hebrews of Jesus' time and before that saw this, and the only conclusion was that Yahweh is multipersonal. That doesn't make you a polytheist. It just means that Yahweh is unique. He has a unique, he's a unique being. Now we see also, which is interesting, a, an economical difference or economical distinction. Again, economy and, and ontology are very different. In a, in a marriage, a woman does different things than a man. We have different economies, but we have the same ontology. In First Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, in First Chronicles 21, verse 15, we see the angel and, and Yahweh interacting. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, Yahweh saw, and he relented from the calamity. 
And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was standing by the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. So you have, you have this kind of cooperation is probably the best word I can really say. This cooperation between somebody working the destruction, somebody looking out over it and, and sort of managing it in some sense. And in First Chronicles 21, verse 27, again, then the Lord commanded, then Yahweh commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. And we'll see this sword idea or commander of the Lord's army being echoed a little bit later. But the angel of the Lord is God, very clearly so. Yet also he's doing things within the world. Whereas Yahweh that's imper- or not impersonal, but um, incorporeal, right? Spiritual Yahweh is separate from and overseeing in some sense. Now co- compare this to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now this is the thing we just read with the angel of the Lord being over this place. And Solomon built the house of the Lord on Mount Moriah where Yahweh had appeared to David his father. So who was doing the appearing? Well, it wasn't the incorporeal Yahweh that was speaking to the angel of Yahweh. It was the corporeal Yahweh, the angel. Does that make sense? So Solomon saw the angel as God. And you'll see that pretty much everybody saw the angel of the Lord as God. They didn't see him as just a messenger that was speaking on behalf of God, but actually God, supernaturally powerfully equal to God and receives worship. So what do we take from these things? Well, the Jews were right to believe in this idea of two powers in heaven. Again, without the full revelation of scripture, this is what the Old Testament leads you into unavoidably. And you're going to see, we just scratched the surface. Unavoidably, the New Testament leads you to, to seeing that there is plurality within God. And you know that God said of himself that he is the only God. There is no God besides him. There's no Savior. There's no God. He's the only God. Well, then how do you make sense of that? Well, you realize that God is one being that is multipersonal. And that doesn't infringe on your monotheism because you worship that one being. And you give glory to that one being. But that one being is multipersonal. So this is this is why... Again, the Old Testament is painting these pictures that are a little confusing if you don't have the full revelation of Scripture. And that's the point. The point is to point you to a longing for a desire to know, to understand what's going on here. And when Jesus shows up, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, and reveals the Father, reveals the Holy Spirit, and reveals himself then you understand the the beauty and the magnificence. You can go back to the old times and say, oh, okay, all of this makes so much more sense now. It makes so much more sense. There's plenty of evidence, of course, that God is transcendent, but there's also a lot of evidence that God is also a person, like it has a physical body that is distinct from the non-personalized 
I'm trying to get my words right here so I, I don't say this incorrectly, but you see distinction within God. That's really the main point. Because again, you have all these examples where he is speaking of himself in the third person, and you have that throughout the Bible. Now, very important, two, two persons does not disprove three. In a future episode, we're going to look at one of the heresies that are out there, which is the heresy of binatarianism. Now, Heiser mentioned binatarian, a binatarian view. That doesn't mean he supports binatarianism. Heiser was a Trinitarian, but binatarianism is the idea that the Holy Spirit is just a force. It's, he's not a person. It's just the Father and the Son, which is really, if, if you're going to accept plurality within God of two people, of two persons, I should say, then what is the problem with three? That That is really the issue. Because like we looked at in the one of the first episodes in this series, there's plenty of evidence that the Holy Spirit is both a person and also that person is God. So I don't see what the issue is. But nevertheless, binatarian, binatarianism has some serious problems. And a lot of people, again, it's, it fluctuates because some people believe in a binatarianism where Jesus is sort of less divine than the Father, kind of like a subordinationist kind of view. We'll look at all this stuff more in detail in future episodes. There's monarchical Trinitarianism, where the Father alone has self-existence, which that's that's wrong for many reasons as well. But all these things are just trying to put God into a box is really what's happening. You're trying to put God into a box and not okay with dealing with the mystery of his being. The Trinity is the best model that we have to explain God's revelation of himself. Is it perfect? No, nothing's perfect. Because you can't label the infinite created being of the universe. But nonetheless, it's a model to explain and for us to marvel and understand what we see, which is that God is multipersonal. So all of this demands a little more investigation. So let's check out the first example, which is how the angel of the Lord dealt with Abraham. And that's, of course, in the book of Genesis, mostly. We'll look at a lot of different examples. Now, the first example here is in Genesis 16, verse 9, where it says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also asked, said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is Hagar, by the way. The angel of the Lord is kind of intercepting Hagar when she ran away from Abraham. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against every one and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. So Hagar referred to the person who was speaking to her as God. You are a God of seeing. And of course, you don't obey anybody other than God, and the angel of the Lord is telling her what to do. So very, very important. In Genesis 18, um, right in the beginning, chapter 18, verse 1 through 3, and Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, this is Abraham, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
And he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Which is, I don't, I'm not saying this is the Trinity. I just think it's it's an interesting number. When he saw them, he ran from from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Very important. Did God stop him? No. And said, "O oh Lord, if you if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought out and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While bringing a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So basically these people come and meet Abraham. Abraham bows to them and there he's not like rebuked for basically bowing himself to the earth. And this is a prostration type of thing. It's not just politeness. This is, this is an act of worship and he's not rebuked for it. Very interesting. Now, later in verse 14, we see, again, this third-person interchange. The, the Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So the person speaking to him is Yahweh, meaning one of the three people is, is Yahweh that he's entertaining. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the, point, at the appointed time, I will return to you. So now we have confirmation that it's not just a voice from heaven. This is one of the speakers, one of the people, because he's there with them and he's going to return about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it and say, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Such a funny interchange. I just love this scene. So Sarah overheard Yahweh speaking. So again, it has to be one of the one of the people speaking had to be Yahweh because she overheard Yahweh speaking. Do you see the connection? It wasn't just a voice from heaven. She overheard, meaning she was listening to the three people converse. So one of them was God. Very, very interesting. Now we have confirmation of this a little bit later. In verse 20, 21 through 22, I will, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is Yahweh speaking about Sodom. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So one of the people that was in this party was Yahweh, because the two angels left and one of them remained, and Abraham stood before him, meaning he was standing with God. Further confirmation was in 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 33. And Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So we have confirmation that out of the three people that came to Abraham, one of them was God. Very interesting. Now, of course, later, right in the next chapter in verse 1, it says the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now, if you recall, there were three people that came and met with Abraham and hung out with him, basically. Two of those people went to Sodom. Abraham stood before the Lord, before Yahweh, before God. So, obviously, one of those people, one of the bodies, was God, was Yahweh. Which, again, it, it's a little confusing if you don't have the revelation of multi-personality. Multi, not multiple personality, but multi-personhood within God with these distinctions. Now, 
in in the whole thing with Sodom and Gomorrah, again, you have this distinction of third person and and plurality when the judgment happens. This is in chapter 19, verse 24. God destroys Sodom. And notice how it says God destroys Sodom, which is, again, very interesting. Because if you understand that God is plural, is triune, this is an interesting way to say that. Then the Lord, meaning Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So what happened? Well, Yahweh met with Abraham, then he went to Sodom, and then he rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. You have a distinction between the one doing the raining of the fire and where the fire is coming from. The one doing the judgment and the, and the fire is coming from heaven, from Yahweh out of heaven. So again, you have this multi-person distinction and specifically two people because you have a physical appearance of Yahweh that is raining judgment from Yahweh in heaven, which is the incorporeal, unseen Yahweh that everybody understood intuitively. Compare this to Amos later, much later, chapter 4, verse 11. I overthrew some of you, this is Yahweh speaking, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now, this is a very interesting statement. Again, if you remember the title of the chapter of Genesis 19, of the judgment there, it says, when God overthrew Sodom. But God is triune. And, and in Amos, you have another kind of hint here, which is which he says, I overthrew some of you. This is Yahweh speaking. I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Why, why doesn't he say, I overthrew some of you as when I did with Sodom and Gomorrah? Why, why is not the personal noun used there? The first person noun. It's because God is triune. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, declares Yahweh. Very interesting. These are these are just very interesting little hints and pictures throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 21, a couple chapters later, he's speaking to Abraham again. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called, actually this is Hagar, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, and for I will make him into a great nation. So, you have third person speaking. The person who's speaking is speaking to her, and he's speaking of God in the third person. But then, <laughs> I mean, look at how this switches like three times, actually. In the beginning, it says, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called Hagar from heaven and said to her, so what's going on here? God heard the voice of the boy. We assume that the angel of God is the one who heard and he's responding to her because he says, what troubles you, Hagar? So obviously the angel is the one who heard. And he says, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now, now the angel speaks in third person. Okay, so that means God has heard and maybe the angel is just kind of delivering the message. But then he says, up, lift the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. First off, there's no created being that has that power. 
Only God has the power to give life, to multiply, to, you know, to turn you into a great nation, all these types of things. So you have this back and forth of third person, first person throughout the interchanges that we see with, with a lot of the Old Testament figures. Abraham, of course, is one of the main ones. Another chapter later in Genesis 22, verse 11 through 12, it's about Abraham and Isaac. He says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Third person. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Well, wait a minute. If you, you fear God third person, but now you haven't withheld your son from me? There's no created being that would be able to say such a thing. Only God can say such a thing. So he's speaking in third person, but then he's bringing attention back to first person. Again, very, very interesting and very difficult passages to understand if you don't understand the revelation of the New Testament. In Genesis 22, verse 15 through 18, you have, again, another plurality and an interchanging. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. So the angel of Yahweh is speaking and he's speaking like in the third person. By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have not done this and withhold your son from me, I will bless you. So he's going back and forth. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the sea on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You do not obey anybody but God. Do, do you see like the, the constant, it's not confusion, but it's, again, it's, it's designed to, to make you wonder. It's really designed to make you question because God's dealings with Abraham and Hagar and Sarah very clearly show that there is this plurality within God. There's one God, but he's plural. Somehow, right? We don't understand that in the Old Testament. That's why there was the two powers in heaven. But God is plural nonetheless. Now, the next person I want to highlight is Jacob. Jacob deals a lot with God, obviously. He's one of the patriarchs. And there's a lot of very interesting things that Jacob deals with the angel of the Lord. And the first one's in Genesis 32, verse 24. Now, this one's, of course, super famous because it's when Jacob wrestles with God. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Very important to understand that this was a man. It was a physical person that showed up and wrestled with Jacob. But then, a little bit earlier, actually, Actually, no, sorry, later in, in verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So God sees, or Jacob sees this interaction with the person that he was wrestling with as seeing God and, and living. You've seen God to face face. It, was, it wasn't just a man that showed up, it was God. 
in a little bit earlier in Genesis verse 28, two verses earlier, he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. This is God speaking. But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Well, Jacob has striven with who? Laban and Esau up until that point. He was running away from Laban and, you know, he basically scammed Esau (laughs) with the whole dinner thing with his inheritance. So he's striven with men, but he's just striven with someone and that person is God because both the person who spoke, which is God, saying that you've striven with God, you've striven with me, and Jacob afterwards, two verses later, reflects that, yeah, I've seen God face to face and I've lived. So this was obviously something very significant that happened. It wasn't just a messenger, it was actually God that Jacob was interacting with. Now, Jacob is also famous for basically holding this person in some sort of neck lock or, you know, just a wrestling position and demanding him to be blessed. Now, of course, if you are blessing someone in the Old Testament, that means you are the one that's greater than them. So that's just further proof that this person was perceived not just like some man that walked up, but there was something supernatural going on. In Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, we see, again, pictures that look back on this, still in the Old Testament, but they look back on these even older events, and they see that this was actually God. It's confirmation. Hosea 12, verse 3, the Lord's endowment of Israel and Judah. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and his and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So Hosea says that the person who Jacob wrestled with was God, and that God was Yahweh. Even though Jacob wrestled with a man, with a physical person. So again, very, very interesting thing. God. Now, another interesting point is that God obviously let Jacob win. Obviously. This whole thing was designed as a prophecy, because again, it's nonverbal prophecy. Just like with Abraham and Isaac, as we read before, there was never an intent to do anything to Isaac. The point was to foreshadow because Abraham was a prophet. Remember, God said that Abraham was a prophet. And so God was acting out the prophecy of Jesus, Jesus' life, through Abraham and Isaac. And the same is with Jacob, which is very interesting because God basically, what did God do? Well, God let him win. He humbled himself. And he let Jacob get him in a headlock or whatever. And so that way he could bless him. So all of this is just very interesting how, again, it's foreshadowing of Christ. Christ humbled himself. And that way there was a legal precedent to bless not just the Jews, but also all of humanity by humbling himself. Now, later in Genesis, we see more appearances of the angel of the Lord. And of course, the angel of the Lord is God and appears to Jacob. In Genesis 31, verse 11 through 13, it says, Then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped. 
Spotted Mall before I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you are anointed a pillar and a vow to me. I think we read this one previously. I might have put it in here again, but again, it's, what is the point here? The angel is saying, I am God. I am the one who you made a vow to. You don't make vows to messengers. Every messenger in, in the Bible that is not the angel of the Lord always speaks when they're speaking on behalf of God. They never speak personally like, oh, you made a vow to me. No, no, no. You made a vow to God. Never to me. The angel of the Lord is the the only one who speaks this way, which is very important. Now, in a couple of chapters later in Genesis 35, again, it's this whole renaming thing, but there's a different take on it. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. God Almighty is the one who multiplies. But remember, the angel said he's going to multiply with Abraham. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God is, then God went up for him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offer, offering and poured it out on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So obviously, God is the one that is speaking to him. But when he reflects on all of these things that happened, in Genesis 48, we see that it's the angel that is seen as God. And so it says, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. So he's reflecting on this experience. And what is he saying to Joseph, his son? He's saying, God Almighty appeared to me. Well, wait a minute. It was an angel that appeared to you. So he's saying that God Almighty, meaning the God, appeared to him. Very, very important. So now we put it all together later in this chapter, in chapter 48, when Jacob blesses Joseph, verse 15 through 16, and he blessed Joseph and he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has seen my shepherd, who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Now here comes the kicker, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, <laughs> bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So who is he calling on to bless? Well, he's calling on God, but there's only one God. And yet, in within God, there is a distinction. Jacob knows that the angel who he wrestled with, the angel who appeared to him, was Yahweh. And there's nothing wrong with making a distinction between God and Yahweh, as in the, the angel of the Lord. They're both Yahweh. They're both God. That was not seen as polytheism. That was not. That was seen as perfectly monotheistic to speak this way and make a distinction between what Joseph is speaking about in terms of the God is in generally and specifically Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. So very important. What's the conclusion of all this? Notice that the angel is the one that's blessing the boys. He's asking 
in the name of the angel, basically. You don't do that. You don't say that the angel redeemed you unless the angel is God. If, if the angel is not God, and he's just speaking on behalf of God, Jacob would be violating the first commandment, and he would never do that. The, the, the statement that the, the angel who re- redeemed me, and he's blessing in the name of the angel, and, and saying that the angel is basically God, these things do not work if you reject that God is multipersonal. He has a plurality within himself. They don't work. You can't reconcile it. But of course, you can reconcile it because God is multipersonal. There's distinction within Yahweh. So to them, the angel was God. Very clearly so. Abraham, Jacob, Sarah, Hagar, all these Old Testament people and founders and early early starters of the faith, they believed that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. He's God. Now, the next one I want to talk about is the burning bush in Exodus and some other places in Exodus where Moses interacts with the angel of the Lord, which is very, again, very, very interesting because we see this dynamic plurality of God where there's an interchange where he's speaking in first person and in third person. And this verse is from Exodus 3, verse 2 through 4. And it reads, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called him, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. When Yahweh saw that he turned to a side, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Who is he looking at? He's looking at the angel that's appearing to him. But the angel is the one that's speaking and saying, I'm God. And Moses realizes that. He's not, he doesn't, he's not thinking, gosh, this is just a messenger of God. He knows that this is God. I need to hide my face. Very much so. In Acts 7, verse 30, where Stephen speak, speaking on these things and recounting all the history of the Old Testament, Acts, he says this, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. This is Moses now. This is the exact thing that we're talking about. In a flame of fire in a bush. So the angel is the one who appeared to Moses, which is what people believed, even up until Stephen's stoning, that the angel is the one who appeared to Moses. But the angel was God, very clearly so. Very, very interesting. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, we see this idea we talked about previously with the commander of the Lord's army, how he has a sword, how there's there's power there, there's military power of some kind. And this is highlighted in Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army. Chapter 5, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, 
Are you for us or for our adversaries? Boy, some courage for Joshua there. And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Now, very important, did, did the angel rebuke him in this case? Let's see, verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the same thing that the angel of the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush. Do you see the parallel? So instead of rebuking him, which a normal messenger would have done, he said, no, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground, meaning you're looking at God, which is what Moses was told. So all these things are just adding up to the same conclusion that all of these people saw that God had a physical manifestation in the world through the angel of the Lord. Now in Numbers 22, verse 34 through 25, we read about Balaam, how he obeys this angel. The angel almost kills him, basically, and, and, and gets in his way. The Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, it is evil in your, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. Very important. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Now, if the angel of the Lord was just a messenger from God speaking on his behalf, he wouldn't speak like this. He would not say, go with them, go, but speak only what I'm going to tell you to speak. Only God tells you what to prophesy. Only God tells you what to say in these types of situations. If the angel of the Lord was just a messenger on behalf of God, like a Gabriel, you know, that, that's often seen as a messenger, he would not speak like this. He would say, go with the men and God will speak to you or God will bring you a message. He's not saying, go with them, but speak only what I tell you. This is very, very different. So people who argue that the angel of the Lord is just a messenger on behalf of God, who isn't God, it's just not consistent with the evidence. In Revelation 19, which is what we mentioned earlier, this is the verse I was trying to find. Verse 10, this is the angel that spoke to John. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Again, what's the angel pointing to? He's not saying these are my true words. He's saying these are the true words of God. What does John do? Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what does the angel do who is speaking? Two clues. He doesn't ascribe the words to himself, which is what the angel of the Lord does in the Old Testament. And he rebukes worship. He, he's not going to be worshipped. Whereas the angel of the Lord is worshipped. And he tells Joshua and Moses to take their shoes off because they're on holy ground. And people see him as God. So very, very different. If people are going to argue that the angel of the Lord is just some messenger, they're really ignoring all of these pieces of evidence that obviously the angel of the Lord is very different. Now in Joshua 6, back in Joshua, 
a chapter later from that episode with the commander, we see again that it is Yahweh who's speaking because Joshua just had this com- this episode with the commander of the Lord's army. If you recall, he he was he realized, okay, this is God I'm speaking to. He bows down in worship. The angel of the Lord tells him to take off his sandals, and that's how the chapter ends. Then the next chapter, the fall of Jericho, this is verse 2, And Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Why is this important? Because Yahweh is speaking to Joshua. This is not like a voice from heaven thundering. He's right there, like he's speaking to Joshua. Meaning the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, who actually, it's not specified that it's the angel of the Lord. It says the commander of the Lord's army. Very interesting in this case. Very unique title. But it's obvious that that's Yahweh that's speaking. So put it together. Yahweh is the angel of the Lord, who's also the commander of the Lord's army. Now we know that Jesus is the king of kings, and he's the one with the sword. It's going to come back and issue judgment. So it's all very, very interesting very much ties together to show us that there's this supernatural figure that is simultaneously God, but also separate from God. Now, in Exodus chapter 6, which is a few um, chapters after the burning bush episode, again, this proves that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. This is verse 2 through 3. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So who appeared to Abraham? Who actually had a physical appearance to Abraham? It was the angel of Yahweh. He didn't reveal his name in the same way that he revealed to Moses. They thought it was God Almighty. That's Remember, Jacob thought, okay, I, I just wrestled with God. I've seen God Almighty face to face and I've lived. And in in this conversation with Moses, where God reveals his identity as the self-existent creator through his name, Yahweh, basically he says, look, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Well, who appeared to them? It wasn't the immaterial spiritual God. It was It was a physical manifestation of God meaning the angel of Yahweh was indeed God Almighty. So how do you make sense of that if if you don't understand the plurality within God? So interesting. Now there's a couple more that I want to touch on with Gideon and Manoah in the book of Isaiah. There's a book, uh, book of Zechariah and a little bit in the book of Job. These are other situations that again just show the plurality and just the 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 interesting interchange that we see between angel of the Lord and Yahweh. Yahweh is a multi-personal being. And that is designed to, to show you that God is triune because in the New Testament, the revelation is that God is triune and that he needs to be triune to, for everything to work out the way the Bible says it does. Remember our episode very early on in the series, The Trinity and Salvation and why you need a Trinitarian gospel. Otherwise, you have major problems. But Gideon is famous, and so is Manoah, who is Samson's father. And these are in the book of Judges. And we're going to look at these. The first one's in Judges 6, 
And this, this is a bit longer. It's from verse 11 through 24. All right, this is the call of Gideon. Pretty famous interchange. And we'll just read it here. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Third person. Very right off the bat, angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you. He's not saying I'm with you. He says Yahweh is with you. Very interesting. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then all of this has happened to us? And where are all this wonder, wonder where are all his wonderful deeds? So he's speaking to, <laughs> to this person and he gets the understanding from this person that he's talking about Yahweh in his in the third person. If you understand what I'm saying, like the angel says, Yahweh is with you. Gideon doesn't realize that the angel is also Yahweh yet because he responds by saying, well, where's all Yahweh's wonderful deeds? He's not saying, well, where's all your wonderful deeds? Our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord and, and, and Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours and save Israel from hand, from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Do not I send you? So suddenly now, after this confusion, where he doesn't recognize that Yahweh is speaking to him, Yahweh turned to him and said, so it's not a voice from heaven. This is the actual physical person speaking to him, turning to him and saying, go in this might of yours and save Israel. I'm sending you. So now there's the first person. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And Yahweh said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So now we're in the first person. Yahweh is saying, I will be with you. Meaning the messenger who's speaking to him, the angel, the person, he's taking credit and responsibility. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Show me a sign that you're God, if that's the case. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay with till you return. Of course, Gideon is known for all his testings. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat. He brings it out. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff and was that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God. For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But Yahweh said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So and again, like the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. But now Yahweh is speaking to him again. Peace be to you. Reminds you of what Jesus said to the apostles. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar, altar there to, the, to Yahweh and called it, The Lord is Peace. 
To this day, it still stands at Ophra, which belongs to the Epirocytes. So there's more of this, and you can, you know, again, these aren't exhaustive, um, exhaustive verses, but you can see the constant back and forth between first person and third person. Gideon did not realize that he was speaking to God. And at first, it wasn't obvious. The angel's basically speaking in third person of God. And then it's like he flips the script. And it's like, hey, by the way, you're speaking to me. It's like, wait, what? And then, of course, Gideon demands a sign and he gets a sign and he realizes that he's in front of God and he's seen God. And he's like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Please, you know, don't kill me. And God says, no, you're not going to die. Peace be with you. So, very, very interesting that all of these things, again, point to the same thing. Now, there's also a dealing with Manoah, which is Samson's father, which is very similar. This is seven chapters later in Judges uh, 13. And it says, The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. So third person. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So again, you have this same issue. Verse 17, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Remember the prophecy about Jesus that says his name will be Wonderful Counselor? I just think that's so interesting. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering offered to the on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of Yahweh went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Again, worship. You're not allowed to worship anybody but God. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. What did they think that happened here from this whole interchange? That they saw God. They didn't see just a messenger that was, you know, helping them do a sacrifice and basically giving a message. They saw God. They knew that the angel of the Lord was God, and that that did not make them polytheists. All the Jews, Hebrews, believed that the angel of Yahweh was also Yahweh, and that did not conflict with their monotheism. Very interesting. These attitudes were well alive into Jesus's day. This is why the Christians, the Jews who converted to Christianity, did not feel that they were doing anything wrong by believing in Jesus and also God the Father. But again, (laughs) the people who didn't convert declared this idea of two powers as a heresy. Very interesting. In the book of Isaiah, there's a brief little mention, which is interesting. It's Isaiah 63, verse 7, The Lord's mercy remembered. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us and the great goodness of the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up 
and carried them in the days of old. Remember when, um, was it Jacob, Jacob said that the angel was basically his redeemer? Now here in Isaiah, it says the angel of Yahweh's presence, which is a very interesting description. Because in Hebrews 1 verse 3, it's literally like the presence of God is present in, in this messenger. It's not just a messenger. It is the presence of God in physical form, the angel of his presence. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says, this is about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in Hebrews we have, and of course the New Testament in general, we have the full revelation that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. But in the Old Testament, you have shadows of these things where the angel is the, the angel of his presence, meaning the presence of God, the name of God is in this being, in this person. In the book of Zechariah, there's a lot of mentions of the angel of the Lord as well. And we're going to look at a couple chapters from chapter 1 to 12. This is chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? So the angel of the Lord is speaking to Yahweh in the third person. O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy? He's not speaking to himself. He's speaking to Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. And Yahweh answered, answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The angel of the Lord is talking to Zechariah. Yahweh answered the angel, but we know that the angel is also Yahweh. Very interesting, isn't it? So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem uh, and for Zion. So now you have Yahweh speaking about what Yahweh is speaking to Zechariah, if that makes sense. The angel of the Lord is giving Yahweh's words to Zechariah, but we know that the angel of the Lord is God. Up until now, you've hopefully seen that very clearly. Later in Zechariah, they're interchanged again. So in Zechariah 1, he's speaking kind of on behalf of God, on behalf of Yahweh, very much third person. But now watch this in, in verses 1 through 2 of, of Vision of Joshua the High Priest. Chapter 3, Then he showed me Joshua the High Priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Again, third person. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So you have, again, this interchange where there's a third-person reality going on. The angel is speaking, but the angel is speaking in the third person. And he's speaking about Yahweh. Now you look again in later in chapter 3, verse 6 through 7, and the angel of Yahweh solemnly, solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, he's delivering a message from Yahweh, but angel of the Lord is Yahweh. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. So the angel of Yahweh is delivering a message from Yahweh. But we've seen clearly that the angel of Yahweh is also Yahweh that claims 
to be God, that claims God's actions, that receives worship, and yet he's speaking in distinction. Yet later in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, we see again this unity again. Chapter 12, verse 8. On that day, Yahweh will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and that the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So what is the angel of the Lord like? Like God. It's a comparison that is... You don't really do that with a created being or just a regular messenger. There's no... Gabriel is never compared to being like God. Like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So they knew that the angel of the Lord who went before them in battle was God, the one who delivered them. And that was not a problem. They were still monotheists. Now compare this to a little bit earlier in Samuel, where again, there's this comparison of you're like God if you're like the angel of the Lord and vice versa. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 17. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Yahweh, your God be with you. So th this is a, an elaborate situation where they try to set David up, but you know it, it doesn't work out and he has wisdom and he sees through it. And so they, they basically acknowledge that the wisdom that you have to discern what's good and evil, you're like the angel of God, meaning the angel of the Lord. You are like God to discern good and evil, meaning you are, you have wisdom, you have true wisdom. Again, the comparison between the angel of the Lord and God that was done in Zechariah, same thing. It's, it's a one-for-one -one comparison. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, we have again another, this is a prophecy of Christ as well, but again, it's showing divine shadows of, of this reality of a triune being. Him whom they have pierced, famous prophecy of Christ. And I will pour out, this is Yahweh speaking, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, third person, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, third person, as one weeps over a firstborn. Again, prophecy of Christ, very much so about the crucifixion, but Yahweh is speaking of himself and also of the third person. How do you explain that? Well, you explain that the Yahweh is a triune being. And he entered reality through the Son, who is Yahweh, in the incarnate body of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a real person that was born and yet nevertheless lives forever now and is God. That is how you explain that Yahweh is speaking of himself and then suddenly also speaks of the third person of himself. You're going to mourn for him as for a firstborn. Well, again, how do you explain that? Does it make any sense from our limited understanding if we don't have the model of the Trinity? One more final one I want to give you. I know this has been plenty of examples, but I really want to give you as many as I possibly can. This is Job 3970. It's a little bonus example. God is speaking here. God is speaking to Job, and he's basically giving him all these examples of his greatness, and he's talking about the ostrich in this case, the wings of the ostrich have waved proudly by their pinions and plumage of love. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground. So he's talking about the ostrich. 
She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. So the ostrich has done some silly things, but God is the one speaking to Job. And yet he speaks in the third person of himself in in this and several other places in Job. Actually, I didn't really bother to list them, but there are many other places in Job where this same type of exchange is happening, the same type of interchange. So God is speaking, but he speaks in the third person. So let's put it all together. Final thoughts on all of this. I wanted to give you an abundance of information. I know it's probably been quite a lot to digest, but look, the Bible is very, very clear in the Old Testament that God is multi-personal. You really, you really have to look again, even cultural um, clues like the two powers in heaven we looked at with Heiser in that dissertation that was written by a Jew, a Jewish scholar, a rabbinic scholar, again, that these things were contextual historical truths during several centuries before Christ, that people were trying to understand how can God be one and yet be multipersonal. It was confounding. They didn't understand it. But of course, when Jesus came, all of this makes sense. It makes complete sense. But if you reject that, then you really run into a lot of problems with these texts. You're not doing honor to these texts that really show that God is both you know, a, a physical manifestation. There was a there was a person that appeared to Abraham and Jacob and Manoah and Gideon and all these people that was God and also spoke of God in the third person. Doesn't make multiple gods. It means that God is tripersonal. We don't understand how that works because we don't exist that way, but that doesn't mean that God can't exist that way. There's countless texts that show both the unity of God, of course, there's only one God, one being, but yet also there are many, as you have seen, and I've done my best to belabor this point to you, that show plurality within God. Very important. It's very clear that God has, in the Old Testament, a physical manifestation that is God, but also is separate from God, meaning it's, it's really, if you think of John 1, again, the New Testament makes all this stuff very clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Well, how do you make sense of that? You make sense of it that God is triune. The Word was God. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh. The Word was with God. The angel of the Lord is distinct from Yahweh. Not separate, because separate's kind of a strong word, but distinct from Yahweh with Yahweh and also distinct from Yahweh. Very, very interesting. There's a physical manifestation, and then there's the immaterial, in heaven, spiritual Yahweh that nobody sees. We also have to separate the idea that the, I shouldn't say separate, but we have to get away from the idea that the angel is just a messenger. Because again, no other messenger in the Bible, like you saw in Revelation 19, verse 10, where the angel is speaking to John, and he's not crediting himself with the words. Every time an angel came, they say, this is what God says. I'm not saying what I say, or obey me, or listen to me, or, you know, in Revelation 19, when John worships the angel, he's rebuked for it. 
So there is no other being that serves in the capacity of a messenger. Remember, messenger doesn't mean ontology, it just means function. Like, what are you doing? There's no other messenger in the history of the Bible that says and does the things that the angel of the Lord does, which is very, very interesting. The angel of the Lord, the conclusion from all of this is that the angel of the Lord proves that God is multipersonal because the angel of the Lord is Yahweh, but he speaks of Yahweh in the third person and is separate from Yahweh, is distinct. Again, separate's kind of a strong word because there's no separation in God, but there is distinction. Very, very important. And in this, again, it's a shadow of the New Testament because in the New Testament, you have the Father, very clearly so, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you that do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, go back to some of those earlier episodes. I think it's episode three. It could be wrong, maybe episode four. One of the early ones where we looked at how the Father and the Spirit are both persons and both God. More importantly, because everybody believes the Father is God, but the Holy Spirit is a person. And that person is probably the least understood of the entire Trinity, of the entire Bible, because he's, he's the least obvious. But in the New Testament, he's very obvious. And we go into that in great depth. So I hope today has been edifying for you. I hope today has been intriguing and interesting for you. I hope these verses that we picked, we picked out quite a lot, but there are even much more in the Bible. So when you go back in your own Bible and you read the Old Testament, I hope that it's inspired you to look a little closer at these interchanges and to marvel and to see these old pictures of the triune God at play. So that when you get to the New Testament, you can see the revelation in so much more glory and so much more fascinating, just mind-blowing, interesting way that it is. So until next time, stay tuned, stay healthy, and we'll see you then. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.